Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Tanya James's latest novel, Loot, an impoverished young toy maker named Abbas finds himself an apprentice to an inventor in the Mysore kingdom of Tipu Sultan. Abbas's preternatural skills and intelligence find him partnering in the creation of one of the great automatons of the 18th century, Tipu's Tiger, a carved figure of a tiger with its mouth around the neck of a colonial officer, which through a marvel of early engineering contains an organ that plays music and produces the sounds of the soldier's agony. When his teacher and friend decamps for France, and a British siege lays waste to his city, Abbas finds himself on an unexpected adventure across the seas to find a home in Europe and to locate the stolen tiger, and to perhaps find love in a figure from his childhood, a mysterious young woman named Jeanne. Part historical novel of colonial India, part sea adventure, part manor house con job, loot is a remarkable achievement a chameleon that never speaks with a singular voice or lets its reader feel too secure in a narrative trajectory. Lute lives in the 18th century, but not with the ponderous details of a cold-blooded history, but with the vitality and dynamism of history given new life in fiction. Tanya James manages to paint a picture of 18th century Mysore, as well as England and France, without reducing their cultures, languages, and peoples to tropes or easy heroes and villains. Tanya is interested in the fates that crisscross lives with unexpected cross-pollinations, and in the blooming of surprise friendships, loves, and vendettas. Loot dazzles with its suspense plots and intricately built characters, Feats of creative engineering not unlike the automatons that roar and check the cosmic time in this glory of a novel. I say without hesitation that it is one of the best historical novels I've read in the last decade. It is a joy that you don't want to deny yourself. Tanya James is the author of Atlas of Unknowns, Aerograms, and Other Stories, and The Tusk That Did the Damage. Her stories have appeared in Freeman's The Future of New Writing. Granta, The New Yorker, O, The Oprah Magazine, and One Story, and have been featured on Symphony Space's selected shorts. The Tusk That Did the Damage was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. Tanya lives in Washington, D.C., where she is an associate professor of English at George Mason University. Welcome to the show, Tanya James. Thank you, Chris, and thank you so much for that intro. I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Thank you. I, I, as you know, I've been posting a lot about loot because I have been really overwhelmed by how much I loved it. I, I received an early copy several months ago and I started it and I thought, oh no, I have way too much work at the end of the semester to be touching this right now. 
and so I had to I had to put it away, um, mm -hmm. which was was quite painful. But when I did return to it, I found that it was exactly what I had supposed an absolutely absorbing historical novel that does not feel like a historical novel. I mean, that's such a gift. And I know from experience how tall, well, I don't know your experience, but I feel like you probably have a lot to read as I do I have like 3000 books on my windowsill just <laughs> waiting for me. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. But there, there are ones that, uh, you know, that have particular calls to me. Loot begins in the Mysore kingdom of India during the real historical reign of Tipu Sultan. Tipu has enemies in neighboring kingdoms, and he manages to push back the British on several occasions before succumbing to a siege. What fascinated you about this 18th century moment in colonial India, and why did you want to approach it in fiction? Mm, I mean, I think I didn't even think about the moment itself until later on in the book. I really, I think if I had thought about the moment and how significant it was, it, it really is like a hinge moment in the history of colonization or colonialism and empire, or the British Empire, because, I mean, you know this because you're a post-colonialist, but from what I understand, this was a time when, prior to this time, the British East India Company had been sort of just a trading company. And then after the the sort of aggression in South India and Mysore um, and the siege of Serangapatam, they effectively wiped out one of their greatest rivals in the in the southern peninsula. And they really wanted that, that southern peninsula. And then and that at that point afterwards, they then started becoming more of a aggressive global superpower. If I had thought about that when I was trying to write or conceive of the novel, I would have been like, I can't, this is too big, mm. too big for me. So I really was, I started someplace much smaller. I mean, I've talked about, I, I was drawn to the automaton itself, but I also, one of the earliest things I encountered was this really interesting thing called the dream register of Tipu Sultan, where he wrote down, he would write down the dream he had that night, immediately, you know, have it transcribed and asked, ask people, what do you think this means? And looking for, you know, interpretations about what, how that dream might figure into his, his victories or potential defeats um, and, and try to kind of try to anticipate what, what his near future would be in regards to his, you know, um, his uh, rivalries with the British, but also with the Marathas and, um, and I just thought it was so idiosyncratic. I'd never read any any ruler having uh, a record like that. And it just gave me an immediate way in of thinking about this this larger than life person um, and looking at his vulnerabilities. And that is what kind of gave me a way into that character so that it wasn't just this iconic person, but it was someone who was really quite paranoid by the end of his reign and and really just desperately trying to hold on to power. Um, so that I felt like the the I really entered into this story through the narrowest of doorways. 
that that sense of him as both immensely self-assured uh, in in the way that strong men so often are and yet just riven with paranoia is one of the things i really love about it because he's such a he's he's an attractive historical figure to think about because he was at the center of this this moment when when a great shift would happen in in colonial india and and he wasn't just warring with the british he was warring with his his neighbors and and you know warring in in kind of religious factions and and in other ways so he's he's so complicated he, yeah i i mean i i imagine i didn't have a whole lot in terms of speeches or or things he had said i mean i had little snippets here and there but one of the things he was known to say was um, better to spend one day as a, a tiger than a hundred days as a sheep or something. Mm -hmm. So at least, at, at least to some extent, someone who believes that they are fated to um, or destined to hold on to hold on to his power or destined to reign Mysore, there has to be a certain amount of like um, kind of um, magnetism and charisma and s conviction. Um, so I think it was just he was really alluring in that way, but also trying to create the layers to that character. Because I, I know there's a craft essay I really like by Charles Baxter, and it's about charismatic characters and how they're always somewhat a little bit removed. You know, they're always at a psychic remove from us um, and, and that there's something alluring about them and they have absolute and total belief in themselves. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that when I was rendering Tipu Sultan as a character but then I, I found myself attracted to the idea of, of going deeper and actually taking on his point of view and, and even just giving him like a bad back or, you know, I just, I just felt like I, I felt like he deserved more depth on the page. And that, that was one of the things that interested me. Hmm. At the center of the novel's adventure plot is Tipu's tiger, an automaton figure of a tiger with his jaws around the neck of a British soldier. He's engineered with this extraordinary internal organ and also has a crank that raises and lowers the so soldier's arm, showing his, I'm assuming, pain and astonishment at his situation. This is a real object that I have seen in the Victoria Albert Museum in, in London. And for me, it has always been one of the great depictions of anti-colonial resistance. What is your personal experience with Tipu's tiger, and how did it end up so central to to loot? That's so cool that you saw it. I had I had not encountered it before. And what did you think when you saw it? I'm just curious. I, I honestly think it's it's my favorite depiction of of colonial resistance. Mm -hmm. And it's I, I think the last time I saw it, I paid no attention to the fact that it had an organ inside it. And I'm just struck by its its figuration as visual art. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe after the podcast, is over, I want to ask you if there's any other anything else like it, because it was the only thing I had encountered by Indian artists or envisioned by Indians of that time kind of turning their gaze back on the British. Mm. Um, like I'd seen in my research, I'd seen various, you know, ethnographic kind of depictions or propaganda that was directed at Indians, but I hadn't seen it the other way. And I know that Tipu was really into propaganda and he, he really, you know, tried to associate 
um, his brand is basically like branding himself, like with the tiger. So he had tiger stripes on everything and on their coins. And, you know, so um, I I will say when I encountered it in a book, I, I thought it was really fascinating and kind of, yeah, I'd never seen anything that was anti-colonialist like that. And also kind of funny. It yeah. also suggested yeah. to me like a sense yeah. of humor, like dark humor. And I think that's very hard to find like the sense of humor of a different historical period like because you know humor is so subjective and it changes over time but that it it felt so contemporary to me in a sense in 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 the in the dark humor of it and then when i went to actually go see it i didn't expect somehow i knew how big it was but seeing it in person it's so much bigger than i thought hmm. and it was really kind of humbling it was it was strange. I was like, I don't know. Do I had just this weird feeling of like I am writing a novel about people who did exist, but who are nothing like the people in my own novel. And there was something kind of haunting about it um, that I still I'm not quite sure how to put words to. But the enormity of it itself was really humbling too. Yeah, almost like you were kind of tearing a fabric between your novel and, and history and this real material thing kind of yeah. staring you in the face. Yeah, that's a great metaphor because I I felt um I felt for a while like, is this the right way to write historical fiction? Because I just I just as associate historical fiction so much of it with people who have done meticulous research, like um, you know, Andrea Barrett and um who else? Jim Shepard or obviously the queen, uh, Hillary Mantel. Um, <laughs> but I, I, and I, I kept, I kept looking for any record of courtly life. I just wanted to know the jokes and the, you know, the, I just wanted to know all the weird stuff that you cannot make up and I couldn't find it. And I, which is, I think that, that Tipu Sultan, if you're the kind of guy who's going to keep a dream journal I feel like there probably were records of what life was like. But, um, you know, when the British East India Company invaded and, and um, they burned a lot of the, they burned the palace and they burned, um, they burned a lot of books. They burned a lot of things, but they took a lot of things as well. But um, so I, I imagine that these things did exist. And I, you know, at, at some point I just thought I need to make a decision here to just, you know, be kind of bold and try to just step into it and kind of forget that I am writing about a real place and a real time. It's sort of a, it's historical fiction, but it's this, I think all historical fiction to some extent is speculative. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. If it's not, it's usually like very tiresome to read, <laughs> I feel like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I'm going to post a link on the website, burnedbybooks.com, that shows Victoria and Albert brought in a kind of period musician who plays the organ of it. Um, and, and I think just anyone who hasn't seen that, you have to see it. And it's sort of, it's really like jaw dropping it's, to see this thing operate. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, experts suggest that the tiger is a hybrid of French and Indian engineering and craftsmanship. This is a rather perfect analog uh, to the kind of cultural hybridities you track in the novel. How does the idea of cultural mixing help you to represent this period of history in the novel? I, I think it, it gave the novel somewhere to go. I, I, I initially thought that it was going to be all set in England, 
and that it would be a country house novel, uh, which I was like, I just love those. Why not? And I liked the contained shape of that concept. But then the more I sort of thought about it, I, I kept thinking about the artist. And and so with the novel, I kept going back and back to his origins. And I just have always been interested in this mentorship relationship that there's a mentorship between the French engineer who is at the court of Tipu Sultan. And Tipu has asked him to make this Tipu's tiger, this automaton. And, you know, this engineer, he knows how to make the internal mechanics of it, but he needs someone to to design the outside, the exterior, the wood uh, tiger and, and soldier. And that's how he kind of brings brings Abbas, who is the woodcarver, into the project. And at first, I at first I wasn't sure what to do with this French engineer as a character. Who was he? Why is he important? But I know that for me, something I think about a lot are the at this point in my life are the people who who said the right thing to me at the right time, mm-hmm. and, as and made me opened up that vista of possibility in terms of whether I could or or how I could become an artist. There's at one point I think Dulez. I think Abbas is thinking about Dulez and he's asked what made him a great teacher. And all he can come up with with is um, this line. He says he had faith in me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of times we think of mentorship as like, you know, being recommended for something or somebody who kind of pulls you along and gives you an agent and gives you this and gives you that. But I think the biggest things that certain people have given me are just saying, I'm not worried about you or... Mm-hmm. You, you can just keep going. And and so I, I wanted to, I, I think I wanted to explore that relationship between the two of them. I lo- it's my favorite relationship of the novel. And even though it's it's platonic, it, it feels so intimate in, in the ways that you describe that, that idea of giving someone the gift of believing in them. And and believing, you know, at one point, Deleuze is is trying to prepare him to to come to France and work with him, and and he's sort of giving him all these books, and he's going to teach him French, and he and he says you'll come and you'll have lessons on horology and and French, and and he, he's opening this whole other world that you know for a you know a very poor young man in a family that doesn't quite appreciate his talents is is really more than he could have ever dreamed of. Yeah, I think that's true. I hmm. yeah, it I mean, I think it's one of Abbas's, you know, greatest deepest wounds that he couldn't that he made the wrong decision in that case. Not going is, on the first ship. Yes, or... which is when he was invited to go, he didn't go. He failed mm-hmm. to go. And I think that failure is in part what gives him the momentum that sort of propels him to take even greater and greater risks as the novel goes on just to get to um, pursue his dream of becoming an artist. I, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, in many ways, he saves Dulez's life. Yes. And so it's it's not a it's not a one way mentorship. It's very much, a, you know, he comes into Dulez's uh, life at a very low point in which uh, Deleuze feels as though he can't, you know, express um, any of his desires or need for a, a partner, and he misses France, but also feels uh, like an exile. And Boss is so important to him, and I think that's I'd love that. Yeah, I think you drew out the kind of mirror, the way in which they mirror each other in some ways, and they're both kind of 
isolated from others in certain ways, like a boss is sort of isolated in the way that he is a he is by nature an artist and he can't he can't quite kind of fit in with the mold that his parents want him to be and just do what he can, has to do. And Dulez also is somewhat isolated in terms of his sexuality as well. Um, but I think that they have a certain kind of understanding because of the similarities between them. So Loot is a true post-colonial novel. It reminds me of the best of its kind with wonderful resonances with the novel Washington Black by S.E. Edijan and Hari Kunzru's The Impressionist being just a couple that come off the top of my head. But we could take the story of Abbas further back and think of his connections to Kip, the bomb disarmer in The English Patient, and even Kim, the eponymous hero of Kipling's problematic colonial novel. Can you talk about the ways in which you engage and transform commonplace notions of colonial India and the colonial relationships between Europe and India in the 18th century, and whether there are particular novels that helped you to do that? Mm, I love, I love Washington Black. Me too. That was, yeah, it's just amazing. That was a book that really helped me because I had thought, I had struggled for a while with thinking, how am I going to get this character to where I I know where I want them to go, you know, in terms of going from India to France to England, but how am I going to get the reader to believe that a low class woodcarver would ever be able to get a chance like that and would you know end up on a ship and um, become a, a carpenter on a ship and then end up on a French pirate ship? It's just so many kind of different adventures that he goes on. And I just thought this is nobody's going to believe it. And I often find that in the writing process, I'm worrying about the wrong things. I'm fixating <laughs> on things that the reader just doesn't care about. But um, and then I am, have blind spots about other things that are that matter more. But um, but at the time, I just was really paralyzed by that. And I and I think it helped me to think about the tradition, the picaresque, and books. And I, I actually think um, Washington Black fits that model to some extent in the mm. second half. Like the first half is um, it starts with a young Black enslaved person, boy in um, Barbados on a plantation in Barbados. And it's heartbreaking. And he finally, you know, is liberated or he escapes. And then, you know, most slave narratives would end somewhere there from from, you know, from slavery to liberation. But then she lets him have all of these adventures and she lets him discover a whole new sense of intellectual curiosity and freedom and um, desire. And, and he has a love affair. And I mean, it just she just gives him all the things that we would typically and think of as um, the journey of a hero. And I, and I thought, why, why not? Why can't I? If I just... If I just speak with authority about this character, maybe I can do those things too. And so I kind of, I that was a book that sort of almost felt like it was giving me permission to do what I wanted with this character. Like just if I can make the reader believe that this is the type of person who would go on all these adventures, then that's kind of all, that's kind of most of the work. Um, and so so I, I just, I, I felt like that tradition, that book, helped me in a lot of ways. 
I tell me if I'm stepping too far here, but I even feel a partially a conversation broached with Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And there's this quote from the section of the novel when uh, a boss is at sea. Sometimes the black children linger at the edges of the dockyard watching us at our work. When we look their way, they whoop and disperse like a flock of starlings. That analogy and the animal-like whooping sound that is narrated by the seaman Thomas Bedeker reminds me of Conrad's narrator describing Africans along the shore in the Congo. And it seems to me that the fact that you give this to Bedeker to say is a reminder of how that narrative tradition works both in history and in fiction of animalizing and othering. That is such a good connection. And because I feel this is a safe space, I'm going to admit that I haven't read Heart of Darkness, but I, I have read that. Very safe. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that connection you're making. And I wish I could pretend that I intended it, but, but I did, I, I always find it striking when I'm reading older, you know, like I was reading like Mariner's uh, memoirs and, and things like that. And I did read at some point that um, a description of black black children, or you know, the the term black being being used for all, anybody who's not white, mm-hmm. um, which that kind of was striking to me, and and the way in which you sort of, through this perspective, erase any kind of distinction between. I mean, there was yellow, but then there's also just black, and those were the two kind of distinctions, um, racial distinctions. I I I I do like the fact that uh, I don't know. I I like seeing how language is not yet, you know, the seaman's language is not yet able to give nuance or detail to to the other person or to the other. Mm-hmm. And I, it doesn't strike me as racist, or it just strikes me as just lacking the capacity. It just mm-hmm. lacks the capacity to understand. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. And, black, and- black children seemed like a, a good discovery. And I love the dramatic, formal, and narrative turn of Bedeker's journal, which comes in the middle of the novel and gives us, I'm, am I right in thinking this, the only first-person narration in the yeah. in the novel. You know, it's given over to this English seaman who has a, a, a budding friendship with a boss who's a stowaway and then and then a worker on the on the ship. And we get this other vision of a boss. We've had a a third person kind of helicopter view of him. And then we get this, as you say, uh, a a person without the language to describe who a boss is, but understanding that there's something about him that he wants as friendship or as discovery. And so I'm very interested why you took the the chance, because it's a it's a chancy move to to change voice and to have this new form stuck in the middle here and to give that voice over to this English guy. Um, So I want to know how you got there and then um, how you think it functions in relation to a boss. Well, I I found myself a bit, uh, I I often find myself a bit antsy when I'm in the middle of writing a novel, when I get to some place that feels like the middle. And I just, I I feel like I want to do something different, whether formally or moving to a different point of view, and and I thought the epistolary form seemed to inject inject a kind of mystery, and it's something about that voice really thrilled me. I was reading just for research. I was reading a lot of memoirs and diaries like this. I love how the epistolary form can 
move through time and feel so immediate. Um, and I knew it was a kind of risk because there's the spell that the novel has cast. And do you really want to break that spell for the reader? And for some re readers, that that's just alienating. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm hoping that, you know, people are just take, just go with me by that point. By that point, I'm, my hope is that I've, you know, kind of won them over to some extent that they're willing to trust me um, to keep going. I, I was really drawn to this character. In part, I just think it's interesting to look at the character that you've been with so closely for the first half of the novel, which is Abbas, and to kind of see him from an external perspective, from somebody else's point of view. I think by this point in the novel, Abbas has really changed, and he's gone through some traumatizing experiences, and he is no longer as trusting as he used to be. And he really is has formed his ideas about being alone and 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 you know trying to make it, making sure that he doesn't owe anybody anything. That he has to be kind of ruthless about um, looking out only for himself. And but then on the other hand, he forms a genuine friendship with this other sailor, who himself is also a bit of an outsider because he has a French mother. And at the time, there's these sort of um, enmity between France and England. Um, and so I just, I just like the idea of moving to a different perspective or trying to do it, do something different in the middle of the novel. But then I came to feel like that formal experimentation led to a deeper, a kind of profound emotional moment by the end of it. So it felt justified by the end to me. Hmm. No, I, I absolutely. So when Abbas arrives in France, he learns that Tipu's tiger was given as victory booty to an English officer who oversaw the siege of his home city. He seeks out the tiger as a reminder of his friendship with Dulez and of a lost home. At this point, we meet Lady Selwyn, who Abbas and Jeanne uh, attempt to dupe into giving them the tiger. Loot then shifts genres into something like a manor house novel of manners. How did you want to engage this particular form of the novel? You already said you were interested in country house novels, but how did you want it to connect to the novel's other forms, which at this point we have a historical post-colonial narrative, a seaman's journal, and now this kind of wonderful country house, manor house uh, novel? I mean, in my mind, that was one of the risks I felt like the novel was taking and that I worried about in terms of cohesion are all these, how are all these different forms going to remain cohesive? And in my mind, the uh, the one thing that does keep it cohesive is the presence of the automaton. The way, one of the things I was interested in is the way in which that object changes in meaning depending on who owns it. And for Lady Selwyn, she's this orientalist and um or at least she's passionate about oriental art and she's a collector and she sees herself as a kind of um protector of some kind of um, cultural heritage and the automatons in her house and like kind of getting dusty but 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 i think her attraction to it at first i kind of thought it was sort of funny to think about this character and, and easy to mock a character that's an easy kind of comic foil um, but then I, I thought it's her relationship to Rum, who is her land agent and who, mm. 
who actually, he's sort of a steward. He's sort of like, almost like a, her business manager in a way. Um, he, there was something about their relationship that seemed to be, seemed to have, seemed to carry some kind of profound thematic uh, ideas in terms of power and the way in which power can corrupt or corrode. I think that it, it corrodes him in a way. He's genuinely, you know, he, he, he thinks of her as his protector. But what about when that, that you know, how he, he, he later comes to understand how precarious that protection is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something, there's something about their relationship. I, while I was still interested in Abbas, my, my interest also shifted to, you know, the other people who are coming in contact with this thing. And he himself has such a different relationship to Tipu Sultan, who he reviles. And, and so I just liked the way, you know, in the, in the country house, even though it's a very contained space, the, the, the cast of characters has expanded and we get to see the automaton through different people's eyes in a way. Uh, Mr. Rum, uh, the steward that you mentioned and secret lover of Selwyn, is such a surprising and interesting and revealing character, especially in his relationship to Abbas. The two are colonial subjects who have ended up living in Europe, but they understand that history from nearly diametric positions, at least at first. Can you talk about their relationship and how it illuminates the extraordinary diversity of Indian history, religion, and culture that is too often reduced to a monolith in fiction. Mm. I always, I mean, sometimes I think about, I grew up in Kentucky, and my parents were from Kerala, and um, wherever we go, whenever my mom would see another Indian and possibly another Kerala person from Kerala, she would immediately, it was an immediate kind of channel of connection and conversation and intimacy. And I, I imagine that it's similar to what, um, I mean, you know, on a much greater scale for two Indian men of this time to encounter each other in England, that, you know, that it, it must have been, it would, it would be, it would kind of shake you in some way that even though they're, you know, at opposite sides politically, or it's, so it seems that there's this immediate understanding of this period of history, which in England by this time has already been flattened and kind of, you know, made into this funny holiday and there's Tipu mania and there's like Tipu, Tipu is on plates and Tipu is, you know, there, there's just, there's just a kind of like sister way in which it's been commercialized, but they were there and they, they, they understand that period of history very differently. And so their, their connection is so, it's almost paternalistic. I feel like Rum, the way Rum feels about Abbas is paternalistic in spite of the fact that they are at, on, on different sides of that, of the political sort of spectrum, I guess. Yes. And the, and, and I won't spoil it because it's one of the great pleasures of the novel, but Rum is then the subject of one of the great surprises of the novel and one that absolutely endorses what you've just said about that kind of paternalistic, but in, in the end, an, an interesting and, and more equal relationship, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I did wonder if I don't know if I'm spoiling this. I don't. I, I I personally am not. I'm fine with spoilers, but I understand other people have a problem with it. But I well, listeners say, should mute at this point <laughs> because Tanya is going to spoil something. Here. I'm going to spoil something. But I I I did want. 
I did somehow want a happy ending for these characters. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a way in which I, I, I just felt like maybe that's true of a lot of novels. I don't know why, why that is. Maybe it's like you put characters through so much hardship for so long and you just want to, you just want to kind of leave them knowing, not knowing where they're headed, but, but feeling like they're in a better place. I don't know. I, maybe that's just sentimental in me. Well, I, I love it. And I and I think that there's a, a real desire in readers to see those characters who have endured to find something, something good in their lives. And it doesn't have to be unadulterated happy endings, but it can be lights at the end of very long tunnels. Yeah. This is a quote that sadly Ron Charles in the wonderful Washington Post review that you got stole um, before I could use it. But I'm very interested in the the quarrel that happens between Rum and the, the sort of lower class farm worker, Middle John, who works on Lady Selwyn's property. In their interaction, this man treats Rum as his inferior. And the quote that, that you have in the novel is, Middle John is of a lower class, but race is the final ranking. And it's very clear to me that race operates in all kinds of complicated ways in the novel. And I, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the idea of race as the final ranking. So I think one thing I was thinking about is the way in which race and class are operating in relationship to each other. So while Rum is of a higher class than this guy, Middle John, he has punched him in the face. And so in a court of law, that he would be, you know, that the the matter of class matters less than the matter of race. I'm just glad you brought up Middle John because I, I, sometimes the characters who seemed at first to bear the least re- resemblance to me were the ones I was most interested in. Hmm. And I, I wrote actually a, many more pages about him and I ended well, up cutting them because, <laughs> because I, I mean, I had a whole memory of him stealing pears and eating pears and and I I just felt like I really cared about having characters who I did not want a kind of binary between the sort of tortured subjugated Indian guy the Abbas and then the you know powerful upper class English uh, holder of or, or invader and you know I I wanted to kind of trouble the, that dichotomy with people of different classes and Middle John I I just I, I, I came to, I came to care about him a lot, but then I had to cut back a whole lot of his material because it was at the end. And, you know, again, in terms of sort of cohesion and, you know, where the novel was headed, he, he, he seemed not as important, but he was important to me mm-hmm. in sort of thinking about how, you know, a person of his, he's a farmer or the son of a farmer and he's white and yet he has so little opportunities available to him in some ways he has less freedom than a boss. Before I let you go, I, I was wondering, Tanya, if you'd be willing to recommend a few of your favorite books of late. Oh, sure. I'd love to. I just finished a memoir called Stay True by Hua Su. And, um, that is an incredible memoir. <laughs> it is incredible. I mean, it just won the Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, um, people have heard of it, I'm assuming, but (laughs) (laughs) it's just, it's about his, he's remembering a sort of memoir about his time in college and his relationship with a a friend named Ken. And, and Ken 
um, died senselessly in college, um, and this happens midway through the novel, it's really about memory and friendship and trying to see sort of the patterns of the past and make sense of the past. And I just, it was so moving. A novel that I loved that I read uh, over the summer is Very Nice by Marcy Dermansky. Have you read it? I have, and and Marcy has come on the show, and, and she's one of my favorite novelists. It's just, it is really, it really is so brisk and such a pleasure. I it, It's kind of inspiring to me how, how she just, her, I don't know, somehow she creates this kind of a momentum, the way she's moving from perspective to perspective. And I don't know, I found it kind of like, it, may, it was the kind of book that made me want to write, which I can't. I can't think of higher praise. Yeah, um, have you read the most recent Hurricane Girl? I did. I read it before that. I also loved that one. And um, that's what made me get very nice. Yeah, I I, I love both of those. And they are, they're, they're sort of a marvel of, they, they seem like, almost like gossamer, and yet they're heavy in all kinds of interesting questions and ways. And yeah, I, yes. I love Marcy's work. Mm. I think one last one is a debut by Rita Chang Epig. It's called Deep as the Sky, Red as the Sea. And it's a kind of fictionalized life of Sekyung, who is a, uh, who's known as the Pirate Queen, but she was a Chinese pirate. And um, as you know, I, I'm really into mariners and mariners' memoirs and <laughs> things at sea. I mean, I can't swim, so maybe this is all just me trying to live vicariously. But yeah, I, I enjoyed that one as well. I feel like most of those, like, uh, you know, 19th and 18th century mariners couldn't swim either. So you have a lot, <laughs> you have a lot in common. Swimming wouldn't really save you back then. you <laughs> thrown in the middle of the ocean, but yeah. Uh, I have I've definitely heard of, of that book and and will seek it out. But the book I really want to recommend today, and I just say you have to right away go to your independent bookstore and get a copy of Loot by Tanya James. You will not be dis disappointed. And it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you about this novel, Tanya. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Tanya James for coming on to talk about her tremendous historical novel, Loot. You can find links to purchase Loot and all Tanya's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow. Forthcoming episodes include Molly Lynch and the incomparable Victor Laval. You won't want to miss them. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>